I didn't finish my sermon last week. Uh-oh. So I have to finish it today. Um, but it won't be long, the finishing up of that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read what we didn't finish last week. So Malachi chapter 2, and we're going to look in verse 8, starting verse 8, and then we're going to read down through 12. So God speaking to the priest in 8 says, But you have turned aside from the way, and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I will make you a despised and and a base before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. So may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this and who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. So last week, if you weren't able to watch online, um, we were dealing with a covenant that God had made, um, not literally with Levi, because Levi had already died, but this family line, they became the priests. And one particular guy named Phineas, that God had made a covenant with him, it would be a perpetual priesthood that would come from his line. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron. His father is a man named Eleazar. And so we walk through what to look for in a minister. What is a preacher? What is a pastor? What does an elder need to look like who is serving in full-time ministry? And so we looked at the aspects connected to Phineas's life. And so what we didn't finish was, then God contrasts what not, what not to have as a preacher and teacher and pastor of a church. And that's what he, it's what's there particularly in um, verse uh, 11. I need to get back to my right notes. Here we go. There we go. So in 8 and 9, God is speaking to the priest and saying, this is what you are like. And so I want to just take for a moment as we finish this up and needing to touch on this. How do ministers corrupt their calling? How does somebody in a position like myself lose their way? And so there are four things that God speaks of here in verse 8 and 9, that I think are important for us to look at. You need to hold me accountable to to not be these things. And I want to be what we saw and connected to the life of Phineas. So the first way that ministers, according to God, corrupt their calling is that they decide that another path is more important than walking in Scripture. So the first part of verse 8, God says, but you've turned aside from the way. I've given you the law. I've told you how to live, but you have turned aside from that. And so there are some who decide that the cost is not worth it anymore to do the work and studying. And so they turn from teaching and calling people to walk in Scripture. And they begin to teach things that ultimately sound good, but they don't really hold truth. And sometimes they have nothing at all to do with Jesus. And I believe that anybody corrupts their faith when scripture does not dominate their lives, when they begin to listen and focus on other things. And so this was what was happening with the Old Testament priests at the end of the Old Testament here in Malachi's generation is that they had decided that another path was was a better path than God's path and they began to walk that way and then they began to teach that way. A second principle that God speaks here is that they begin to teach what is not true. And so the second part of verse 8 says they're teaching something. Instead of removing obstacles in their teaching, they are causing people listening to the teaching to stumble more. And so it says, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. The only way for that to happen is for someone to teach something that's not in line with the scripture. And so untruths cause people to stumble. Yes, yes, we stumble over the truth, 
But that's our issue. But then there's teaching that, that sets up things and tells people this is what Christianity looks like that's not grounded in Scripture. And so that kind of teaching can cause people to stumble. Their role was to equip But because truth was not in their mouth and it wasn't what was driving the priests, they were teaching things that caused people to have um, not the correct view of who God is and what they needed to do in their lives. A third principle that God was addressing the priests and how they were corrupting um, their calling and disobedience was, is that they just literally decided, I will corrupt my calling. And they kind of didn't really care about that. And so the third part of verse 8 says, And you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. There are two primary things, I said this last week, that should dominate somebody in my calling. I am to know God before I am to preach about God. I am to know Him and know who He is. Connected with that is I've got to know the Scripture and be someone who is intimately tied to the Scripture. And so I've got to walk in and know the Scripture because it allows me to know who He is. So I can't be a good teacher if I do not do that. And then I am to, from that knowledge, teach and try to be a model as best I can. But the priests at the end of the Old Testament didn't care about any one of those. They decided to ignore God's instructions in the law And they were doing their own thing. And so God's addressing that and just says, listen, I've made this covenant. This to be a perpetual priesthood, but you are rejecting that and you're corrupting that and you're going your own way. And I believe this and I hope to hear some amens. I'm preparing you for an amen. Okay. Christ-centered preaching never corrupts, but it makes the gospel clearer as it remains Uh, with a Christ-centered, dominant, preaching, proclamation, whatever. And so you say, so that's the way it's got to be. So at the end of the Old Testament, when God's about to go silent, and there's not going to, for 400 years, or almost really 500 years, and almost it's 480-something years before John the Baptist appears on the scene, God is telling them, listen, you have corrupted your calling, priests. And God is lovingly calling them back. And so Yahweh was not the center of what they were proclaiming. They were not proclaiming and teaching anymore the the significance of the coming Messiah. The fourth thing that they did in verse 9 there of how they corrupted their calling is that they decided they didn't really care about being respected and they didn't really care if they were despised before the people. And I said this statement last week, but I'll say it again this morning. You know, the pandemic really revealed a lot of things. It kind of pulled back the scale of what, what I think was really true about a lot of people. Um, and then the pandemic was just there, and then you just began to see where people really stood about things. And the, the amount of ministers since 2020 that have fallen publicly is pretty astounding. And to, to live the way that they have been living is that underneath they are despising their calling connected to the truth, and didn't want to live in such a way that the private life matched the public life. There's a great temptation for those in my role who stand up before people to preach is that this would be done to get affirmation. And I I want you to like my sermon, but I also don't care if you don't like it. Because what I've got to do is preach the truth And trust that the Holy Spirit will make the application to your life where you are and to do the work that he needs to do. You need his work far more than you need my work, right? He has infinite wisdom. I do not have infinite wisdom. And so he, this, he's the one who inspired this. And so what we have to do is I have to try as best I can to walk in obedience so that my private life does match my public life. And I think there's just, there's just been a lot of not caring about calling um, and pastors and, and pursuing whatever that they are pursuing. And at the end of the Old Testament, God is saying to the priest, you have shown contempt for me, the living God. And for that crime, I'm going to make you contemptible before the people. You're not going to be respected because of 
how you are living and how you are serving. And then the last thing that he says to them, but he says, you are showing partiality in your instruction. Again, I've talked about in these days, it is amazing how a book that was written 2,400 years ago to the last generation of the written part of the Old Testament, how it is exactly like 2023 in America. We have pastors all over in the West, and particularly in America now, that preach with partiality. What that means is this. They decide what's significant, what do the people want to hear. And so instead of declaring the whole counsel of God, it's just picked and choosed to what brings affirmation or something of that nature. And so God says to them, you are showing partiality in your instruction. And that is not to be the case. We are to teach the full counsel of God. So as we ended last week, there's just three primary things that ministers must have reverence for God's name as they preach. Secondly, they must teach the truth to God's people, not their opinions, not political parties, not other stances. We are to preach the truth and teach the truth to God's people. And the third thing that, that God addressed last week in regard to Phineas, is that his preaching helped turn people away from being caught up in iniquity and sin in verse 6. And so that's last week. Did y'all survive that? Okay, did you finish that up? Okay, all right. What I want to do now is I want to move us into chapter 2 a little bit deeper and, and really look at some things that I believe are important. So we have... We've seen 12 things already leading up to our text today that the people are really struggling with. I'm going to zoom through these. They're going to be up there. You probably will not keep up. So we'll put those. Mike's working on being able to put those up so you can go online and you can look at those. This is where the Old Testament generation was. They questioned God's love. They failed to honor God and respect Him in 1.6. They despised the name of God in 1.6. They gave blemished and defiled offerings to God in chapter 1.7 through 8. They could not see that their worship didn't mean anything anymore. And God said, I wish one of you priests would just say, let's just shut the temple down because we're not going to give the right offerings. That's 1.10. And 1.13, the priests had grown tired of giving, of doing all the sacrifices and all the worship that was happening in the, the offerings. In chapter 1, verse 14, um, they, they were content about giving blemish offerings that they didn't even desire themselves to experience. 2.5, they had quit reveren- reverencing God. In 2.5, they, they no longer stood posture-wise in honor of God and in fear of God. In chapter 2, 6 and 7, they didn't want to teach biblical truth anymore. They wanted to kind of teach their own way. In chapter 2, verse 8, they had stopped responding to true biblical teaching, just not engaging their heart anymore. And lastly, in 2.8, they had corrupted their calling by leading the people astray by not teaching the truth. That's a mess, folks. And that's where Malachi's generation was at this time. And so the land was full of great indifference to the will of the Lord. And his people looked around in the generation of Malachi and they were like, God, you promised this golden age. You sent us away for 70 years. Now we've been back for about 80 years. And where's this golden age that the prophets were talking about? And they began to question God's evaluation of them. They began to question God's word. And it's interesting things sometimes about we followers of God, where we choose to live however we want to live before God, but we want Him as we live however we want before Him to deal with us softly, to not deal with us strongly. And sometimes, you know what we need? We need God to come and deal with us strongly, to address the issues that are there in a part of our lives. Sin was so rampant that just about everything in the nation had become corrupted again. Now think about this for a moment. He'd sent them away for 70 years to teach them a lesson. They'd been back for about 80, and they were right back where they were before he sent them off. They'd corrupted all of it and, and totally forgot all of it and didn't learn the lessons that were there. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some really important principles that, that are really key for us. 
that are important for church life and in your individual life. So we've entered this section in Malachi chapter 2, and it's a much more personal and challenging section. The challenging part is because it's more personal. It's going to talk to us about an important aspect of our lives. And so for three weeks now, I've been trying to establish for us that Malachi's strong emphasis in dealing and preaching to his generation is that he wanted to remind them again that God was for their good. God was not for bad for them. He loved them. These are his covenant people. But God's design for them is that they needed to walk in obedience to his commandments. If we looked last week in Deuteronomy 28, if they walked in obedience, there would be blessings. If they walked in disobedience, there would be cursings on the blessing. And so as the Old Testament is closing, God reminds them how they are to live in relationship with him. And if they would do that, it would be to their great benefit. But all they could do is question God's evaluation about them. And so Malachi 2 presents several pictures of how they should have been living and weren't, but also how some were living. But he's trying to give this contrast to see what was happening and taking place. The blessing of God was not being poured out onto them. And their disobedience had brought about disaster again in the land. And Malachi 2 reveals the one true way in which God followers must live their life in relationship with Christ. And it presents a false way that sometimes God's people walk in and live. So let me present these these things to you. Everybody in the room this morning, regardless, anybody online who is listening... We are living in relationship with God in one of two ways. One of them is good and one of them is what? Not good. Let's do do the positive one, all right? We'll start off with the positive one. Every Christian is living this way. Now, sometimes we struggle in the bad part, but we don't need to be living the bad direction. Here's the first thing. God had designed... In the Old Testament, and God has designed in the New Testament times, that we would live in covenant relationship with God. So God had chose Israel to be his covenant people. Now we are the church. We are in covenant with God. God's promises become ours. But in Malachi chapter 2 alone, six times God uses the word covenant to the priests and to the people concerning how they had either profaned the covenant or were honoring the covenant or really were his perspective of the covenant and how he was living in the midst of the covenant. And I believe when a believer lives in view of the covenant relationship that we have with God, that there are promises that we are bound to, we are to live by. We are committed to faithfulness, integrity. We honor our word. We are committed to order our lives around going to church and, and living by the Bible no matter what. We order our life by avoiding sin and fighting against sin. We freely give of our money to meet needs. We honor our marriage vows. We love others as greater than ourselves. And when that is done, those things are done, then a group of people live in community with one another, and that's a place of great security. Because you know that not everybody else is perfect, but you know that everybody else is on this same journey of living in covenant relationship with one another. And I believe that there are still many churches today and Christians who live in this manner, who take serious living in covenant relationship with God. And when that place is there, there is a stability and a security and a joy of living in life Because the light of Christ is shining on a church or on a person or on a dad or a mom and a marriage. And this pathway of life lives in fear of God and reverencing God and loving God and recognizing that we have been what we just did a while ago. I love love coming to the Lord's table and being reminded that he died in my place as a substitute. And I didn't do anything, and I just, I'm just always reminded of the incredible work that he has done to bring you and I into relationship with him. 
So that's one way we choose to make decisions and live is covenant. And that's what God's dealing with in chapter 2. Now here's the other one. And it dominates our culture. And sadly, it's drifted pretty strongly into the church. And so we're either going to live making decisions based on covenant relationship with God. Or we're going to live and make decisions based on satisfying our fleshly appetites. And those are the two questions. Those are the two choices that people have. Let me talk about that for a moment. Where the first one gives security and hope in confusing times. The second one adds to the confusion and robs people of security and just contributes to a further degradation of a culture. And so all around Judah, this is how things were going in every kind of area of life. The majority just live to try and satisfy their daily fleshly needs. They didn't really care about what God said anymore. We've, all, we've been talking about that in Malachi already. So self-satisfaction was their course. And so Malachi says, these are the issues of the day that God wants to address with you to call you back to himself. But the priests and the people, really the priests, were kind of the driving force of this, just said, no, I, we, we're going to live for ourselves. We're not going to live for God anymore. We're going to decide what worship looks like. We're going to decide what the sacrifices look like. And so all all around the land, this had drifted down everywhere. Here's what happens. When self is the driving force for the people of God. Again, God's not talking to the Ammonites here. God's talking to his covenant people here. And he says, this is how you are making decisions. So they were discarding the sanctity of marriage. There was no faithfulness to Scripture anymore. They got together, we'll see in a couple weeks, and they would talk to one another and say, can you believe God is like this and is doing this? And they would talk negatively about God with one another. They refused to bring their tithes and offerings in. And they were okay with weak and worthless sacrifices. And by the way, this is not a community that I'm describing here, of security and safety. Because when selfishness drives the people of God, here's what eventually happens. Sin is ignored and it's allowed to thrive. And it's devastating for God's people. Honoring commitments to God and honoring our love for one another are really important. And they had forgotten it then And if we're not careful, we can forget it in our time as well. And when you live this way, God and his word are rarely considered as people fix their eyes on the next injection that will feed their flesh and help them in what they hope will get better. And I believe we live in a nation today where feelings run the day, not what is true and not what is right And we have told the younger generations for a while now that they are the answer to the emptiness in their own hearts. Follow your own way. Be your own champion. Be true to yourself. You have a right to think however you want to think and live however you want to think. And I just have one question. How well is that philosophy going? When you look around today, the disaster that's there to where we just tell people, just follow your heart and don't worry about the consequences. And you look at our culture today, and whether one is conservative or whether one is liberal, it doesn't matter. Both groups say, this isn't working well, but we're going to stay entrenched in the direction that we're going, and we're not going to consider that maybe God has something to say. And maybe his way is the way that we ought to go. It's not working, folks, what our culture is doing today. Would you agree with me? So it's incumbent upon those that are God's people to live differently than the culture. You can live like the culture. We can continue to inject in our spiritual veins fleshly desires and worldly desires and all it's going to bring is a greater desire 
for life. And, and it's just going to add more confusion because none of that is the answer to anything. And so God comes to the people through the prophet Malachi and he's saying to them, he's saying this, you've got to make your decisions in light of covenant. I'm committed to you, but are you willing to walk in covenant relationship with me? And so let's look at this now. And so what, what eventually happened was, when you get to verse 10, is that the practice of sin, when this becomes the way, just kind of permeates all of life. And so I want to I give you one, two, three. Let me give you four things real quick that are, I think, important for us <clears throat> to note what happens when we do not honor our, our side of the covenant relationship that we have because we are now in Christ. So they were never going to be a perfect people. We are not going to be a perfect people. But we can live faithfully, right? There can be an overarching thing of our lives that's not perfection because here, just not going to be perfection. <clears throat> but we can be connected to the one who is perfect. And has called us to be in relationship with Him. But when that's rejected, it just brings, there, there's a root of sin that's there where there's a tendency where a prideful selfishness can really take over and control our lives. And this is why daily this crucifying of ourselves is absolutely critical in our own lives. So here, here's what was happening in Judah. They didn't trust God, and they didn't trust one another. You look at our country today, our country no longer trusts God and trusts His Word. And do people trust each other? Not much in our country today. So only God can, can bring about a healing in the midst of that. And what God's teaching here through Malachi about decision-making connected to covenant idea of staying faithful to the promises of God that is the answer. And I think it has to begin. Not with everybody filling football stadiums today. I don't know if there will be Christians in football stadiums today. I'm not saying that. But it's got to begin when God's people gather together. That God's people once again say, yes, God. You're the speaking God. You're the truth God. And we're coming back to you again. And surrendering our lives to you. So there are... Four questions that are leveled in verse 10. So look through there. Have we not all one father? This is Malachi speaking now. He doesn't speak much in the book. God does the majority of speaking. Have we not all one father? He's asking his generation. Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers. So this lack of trusting God, this lack of trusting one another led to four issues. So let me give those to you. One is this, is failure to recognize God as our heavenly father. They were sinning against one father. You may remember in John chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple. The Pharisees are really giving him a hard time. And Jesus, Jesus says some things to them, and they answer Jesus and say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, well, listen, if you were Abraham's children, you would look like Abraham. And when I look at you, you don't look anything at all like Abraham because he was a friend of God. And then Jesus says to him, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did, Jesus said. And he says, you are doing the works that your father did. And then they have a quip back to him to say this because they know of his background of his birth. And so they say back to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We know the story about your family. We have one father, they say, even God. And then Jesus said to them, if God were your father, then you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I'm the one that y'all been waiting for since Genesis 3. I'm that promised one and I'm here in your midst. And he said, listen, I, I came not of my own accord, but the one you're claiming to be your father, 
He sent me to you. And now you are rejecting me. So when we live as believers to satisfy our fleshly desires, we begin to not see God as our Heavenly Father. We begin to see ourselves as the answer to the issues of our lives. Secondly, the next question, second part of verse 10, is then we begin to sin against our Creator. We don't see God as the Creator. We don't see Him as the one that we must give an account to. And so Malachi asks the question, has not one God created us? God's love for them started in His call to Abraham and called him to be in relationship with them and told Abraham, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth are going to be blessed from you, Abraham, because of the coming of Jesus, eventually, that all the families would be blessed. And so God made this unique people that were his own people. And you look around in our world today, and you know this to be true. Genesis 1 and 2 are attacked and attacked and attacked. That God is not the creator. This is an accident. This happened. This happened. This is, this is how the origin of the earth and the world and people came about. Why? Why is there so much attack on Genesis 1 and 2? It's there because if you can remove God as the creator, then we aren't accountable to the creator. And that's, that's the heart of mankind is to be prideful for God and not to have anybody, even God himself, to tell us how to live our lives And so our secular culture constantly attacks Genesis 1 and 2 for that reason. To not acknowledge God as the creator. But now Malachi is saying to a group of people that God had uniquely made out of one man. Now they're this great nation, this covenant people. And he says, listen, aren't we the ones that God uniquely created to be the light in the world to all the other nations. And so he's trying to call them back and to remind them, we have to be accountable to the one who called us, who made us. And yet now they were just dealing treacherously with one another. Broken vows. And when God is forgotten, that's what happens relationally. Leviticus 19.17 says this. Listen to these words. You shall not hate your brother. It'll sound very familiar to a New Testament text. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Matthew chapter 22 and 34 through 39 repeats all of that as well, that we're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our label, our neighbor as ourselves. They had failed miserably to live this out, and it had filtered into every part of the nation's life. So they didn't see God as their father anymore. They didn't see God as their creator anymore. And what eventually happened is they began to sin against one spiritual family, I love this thought, and I thought about it last night because I knew I was going to preach on this text. All over the world, yesterday and today, because of time differences, the true people of God gathered to worship Jesus all over the world, and it sounded differently. Some of it was meeting in a tree. Some of it was meeting by a river somewhere. Some of it was in buildings like this. It was all over the world, and there's this one family that's made up Because of the uniqueness of Christ's work on the cross and his glorious resurrection. And we have this unique binding um, that we have with all of the believers all over the earth. But if we're not going to see God as our father, and we're not going to acknowledge him as our creator, you remove the vertical love and that vertical vision of who God is, then there's going to be problems relationally. There will not be patience and forbearance and kindness with others. We'll not love our neighbor as ourself, and we will begin to sin against our one spiritual family. 
that is connected to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Lastly, Jesus, or, or Malachi, says here, and when we do this, we live just for our own fleshly appetites and we forget about making decisions in light of our covenant relationship with God, then we literally actually begin to sin against the covenant that God has established for us to be in relationship with him. There's a scary verse in the book of Hebrews. We start reading in the W4 tomorrow, Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to get, as we get into the chapters ahead, there's going to be um, a verse in there that talks about trampling on the blood of Christ. That happens and, and there's a strong caution that's given there. And so we are to acknowledge him and then we are to love one another and to consider one another as greater than ourselves. And so the practice of sin was permeating every bit of the last Old Testament generation. And it gets so bad that there's a little bit of season under the Maccabees where there's kind of restoration and a passion and worship for God again as the Greeks come in under Antiochus Epiphanes and he tries to destroy the temple. It does a lot of different things there. But if you'll remember, Jesus... I'm one that believes that Jesus cleared the temple twice. I think he did it at the beginning of his ministry, and I think he did it at the end. So I want you to think about this for a moment. Here's Malachi, and here's God speaking to the last Old Testament generation saying to them, your worship is profaning my name, and it's going to continue to last for about 500 more years until Jesus shows up one day and starts turning over tables. And, and we don't, we, I don't think we have any kind of clue about that. That was an intense day, and I'll just tell you this. Nobody stopped him because God was in the house, and he was telling people, you are still profaning my father's house. And so this isn't the house anymore, this building. We are the house. But I do want to remind you and I that when we come to gather, that God takes the gathering serious, right? So, again, we're not ever going to come in here perfect, but we need to come in here recognizing that my worship of him is in light of this covenant. My fellowship with one another is in light of this covenant, and I am to take it seriously. And so look at verse 11. So verse 11 says this. There's been a profaning of the worship. And so he says in verse 11, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. And he has married the daughter of a foreign God. Okay, y'all ready? Y'all ready? I got to get through this quickly. Y'all never give me enough time on Sunday mornings. It's all y'all's fault, okay? So, so, so listen to this. God's having a problem now with what's happening at the temple. And it's not because of the animal sacrifices, though he's got an issue with them bringing blind animals that we talked about in chapter 1. Bringing a sheep that's just got three legs instead of four legs. They were to bring spotless, pure sacrifices to the temple. So he's already addressed that. There's another issue now that he's going to begin to address that we're going to deal with now and we'll deal with the whole time next week. They were having a family, families, marriage issues all over Judah. And so I want to talk about that for a moment. So all the people, groups, or nations back then in and around Israel had multiple gods. It's not like today where there's like, there's like a nation that's predominantly Muslim, but within that Muslim nation, there are different other kinds of faiths. Back then, for the most part, the people groups, this is what our religion is. These are the, these are the, this is the sun god, this is the, the crop god, this is the animal god, and, and they had all of this. Only the Jews were mon- monotheistic and had this unique relationship that God had called them to be in that relationship with him. And it was to be a relationship 
of great blessing. And yet now, as we've been reading, at the end of the Old Testament, Judah had done something relationally, hear this, in marriage that was actually destroying how they worshiped at the temple. Here's what took place. We'll talk in greater detail next week, but here's the foundation of this. If you'll remember, Zerubbabel come, brings the first wave back of exiles. And then later, Ezra comes back and he restores the focus on the law. And then Nehemiah is in Persia and he hears that the walls are still around Jerusalem are falling down and there's a burden on his heart. I need to get back to the city. So Nehemiah gets back to the city. He was the cupbearer of the king, which is a really big deal. So the king wouldn't be poisoned. Nehemiah was the one who would drink the cup and then give it to the king. He gets back and in 52 days, this amazing work with all kinds of opposition, they completely restore the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah in the text says, uh, in the book says, he goes back because he promised the king that he would go back. And depending on, we don't really know how long it is. I'm one who believes that he's gone for nine years. And he comes back to Judah after nine years of being in Persia. And when he shows up in Judah again, he is astounded at what has happened in regard to sin and worship in those nine years. What happened was this, is that the Jewish men were like, "Hmm, I'm tired of my Jewish wife. I like the way that Moab woman looks. And so they would divorce their Jewish wife They would marry a Gentile wife. They abandoned their wife and their children and got themselves a new family. And so God had established in the moral law for them that it would be good for the community of God's people to be faithful in their marriages. So the men, as Nehemiah's gone, decide... I don't want my old family. I need a new family. I need a new wife. And so they began to marry these Gentile women who worshipped what? Yahweh? No. They worshipped idols and false gods. Now there's a text in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that God gives to the people there that has nothing to do with skin color, has nothing to do with races, It has everything to do with religion. Now listen to this text. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7. So the men have abandoned their Jewish wives. They now have got these Gentile wives who are worshiping these other gods. And there's an echo back to Deuteronomy 7. So listen to these words. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, He's going to clear away many nations before you. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Those are seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. Now listen to this. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and you shall show no mercy to them. And then he gets really specific. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters to your sons, for this reason. Not because you can't mix the races. That is not the point here. This used to be taught back in the day. That is not the point. Here's the point. You should not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters to your sons, for they would turn, your, turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Now, I want you to hear this. 
If you are divorced in the room this morning, this, this is not a criticism of you at all. This is not unloving to you at all. This is not about that. This is about what men were doing in disregarding the sanctity of the family and the preciousness of children being grown up in a home that's focused on God. So Nehemiah has gone for nine years He gets back, by the way, in Malachi's generation. They were alive at the same time, contemporaries. And Nehemiah gets back and he finds out that all over the nation now, all of these divorces have happened and this remarriage has happened. You've got abandoned women and you've got abandoned children. And we'll talk about it next week in Malachi 2. The women were coming to the temple and weeping at the altar of the temple. Why? Because their husbands had abandoned their families. And there was this just crying out from the women of what was happening and taking place. And so I, I want to address something to the men in the room today. If you're single today and you're, you've never been married before, I want you to hear me. If you're a young woman in the room today, I need you to hear me today. God's point here is this. You must marry somebody that's not just a churchgoer. You've got to marry somebody who walks with God and knows God. Because if you don't, down the road, if you've got, if you've got somebody, if it, it, it's kind of, kind of this idea, and, and sometimes I, I, I don't have it as much anymore, but I used to, I was, I was a youth minister for many, many years, and I would have students come and say, well, you know, um, I, I like this guy or I like this girl, um, they don't know the Lord. Their families don't go to church. And so I just, I, I would always caution, look, let me just tell you what God's word says. You need to be really, 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 really careful here about uniting your life with someone in marriage and even dating that doesn't know the Lord. Now, yes, I've seen it. God, people marry an unbeliever and some of you may have that case and God saves the lost spouse. But it's not what God teaches and it's not what God cautions for us. So God here says this. I'm going to work on behalf of you, my people. But I want you to be obedient as I'm working. And I want you to be devoted in your marriages and in your families to fight against and destroy the idea structures that are against Christianity. So we as parents must constantly be fighting about the influence and the voices of culture. And so God tells them there, you've got to devote the ideas of the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Girgashites. You've got to devote them to destruction. Parents, we've got to talk to our kids about what culture is saying and help them navigate the reality of that. Thirdly, God says, don't intermarry with them. Don't, don't encourage your daughters to be married to people who don't know the Lord and don't, don't give your sons that way and, and, and vice versa. Don't do that. He says, and the reason is, and I think you get it. I just want to make sure you, you and I get it. Is because when you've got a home where one just loves God and one doesn't, it just creates tension there that's difficult to raise kids when one parent goes, I don't really care about God, and one parent says, God is my life. And the kids are like, so who do I believe? Who, who, who do I follow? And if you're here today and you're married and, and you're one of those and you've got a relationship where there's deep passion about God and no passion about God, You've got to get together and get that settled. If he is life, which he is, he must guide our families. So the instruction was, don't marry somebody who's going to worship money. And you know when you marry them that they worship money. You're just asking for trouble. Now, let me tell you how bad this was. I have so many notes. Okay, I got time. I got time. 
So when Nehemiah gets back, after nine years, a bunch of Jewish men had abandoned their Jewish families and had married Gentile wives and are having children. Nine years, what I'm about to read you, happened in nine years. This is Nehemiah 13, 23 and following. Just listen to it. You don't need to turn there. You can look at it later. In those days, Nehemiah writes, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Listen to this. Listen to this verse. Half of the children now in Judah spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the Hebrew language. Guess what the law was written in? The Hebrew language. So now you've got all over Judah, men who had abandoned their wives, got new wives that worshipped other gods, and 50% of the children that had been born in those nine years couldn't understand the language when the law was being read to them because they spoke the language of their mother. And so Nehemiah, let me just just, just go a little bit further. And so um, Nehemiah was just a little bit bothered by that. What I'm about to read here, I'm not recommending happen in the room today. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. And then Nehemiah says, Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women. And the point here is clear. So here's what's happening. Somewhere 70 miles away from Jerusalem, there's a community of Jewish people there. We're in the tents of the people living there. There's a man that worships Yahweh and his wife worships some fertility god. And the kid is being raised up where the mom is with the kid all day because that's the way the cultures were back then, telling the kid about the fertility God and the father's off working. And then here's what happened. Watch this. This is why God was having an issue. And then that man 70 miles away who has a home now that has divided allegiance comes to the temple where he's allowed his home to be a place of idol worship, comes to the temple now, brings bad sacrifices, blind sheep, lame animals, diseased animals, and he offers them and gives them to the priest, and the priest should have said, no, we can't accept that kind of stuff, but the priests were like, okay, we can, yeah, so they do this, and they were coming to worship, and God says, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that anymore because my house is to be a holy place. It's to be a place that honors and fears who I am. So when you see this thing, Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, the temple, which God loves, he says here. For this reason, he has rejected his original wife that he was supposed to live with for the rest of his life. He got him a new one, new and improved one. People, you know, not really. And now they're worshiping in their tent the moon god, the sun god, the cow god, this god. You know what the Canaanite, you know what the Canaanite god, god required? Child sacrifice. Some of the men had married a Canaanite and the wife thinks, we've got to sacrifice children. And he married her, went into that marriage with that idea thinking, well, this will be okay with God. 
I can continue to go to the temple. God's going to be okay with all this. This is the condition at the end of the Old Testament. And as we finish this morning, a big part of the point, and we'll get deeper into this next week about family and marriage, is that we are not to introduce foreign gods and idols into our home by way of marriage. Can't do it. So if you're 16 and you're a girl this morning in this room, you need to look for a guy that loves Jesus, just doesn't go to church, but he loves Jesus. If you're a guy in the room this morning and you can't find a girl that loves Jesus, then just wait. Wait. If he wants you to be married and God's good to us, you know what he's going to do? He's going to bring her along. Just wait. Be patient. And so God, again, addressing this issue. And he says, listen, there'll be consequences to this. So, uh, those of you watching online, I'm about to disappear. And if you want to see me, you should come to church. That's all I got to say to you. So, anyway. So, I'm going to come back here. And I've got a little circle right here that says stand. And I know some of you, we've removed our middle aisle. Are you okay, Ransom? Okay, I'm standing. And Ransom's like, what does this mean? So I want to I talk about this just for a second as we finish. You'll hear this today to Christians. People will come to us and say, hey, on this issue, which way do you lean? And I want to say to you today, we as Christians don't lean anywhere. We stand. We stand. Okay, so, so we're not leaning to the left or leaning to the right, and our culture does that politically. But as Christians, that's not what we do. We stand. How you doing? You messed up my thing earlier. Go sit down. <laughs> he, he stepped on my thing earlier, so I'm still going to chalk you up later. I told you I was going to do that. Now, I want to I show you this because this is, this is what had happened for hundreds of years in Israel. There's a line. I know what everybody can see it, but there's a line that's godliness. And at one point in time in our culture, there was a line where most Christians stood there and most of our culture understood a God-centeredness about things. But then the culture is always going to do what to the line? They're going, what do they want to do with it? They want to push it. So they want to move the line over here. And for a long time, what Christians have done is like, okay, this is the line. Supreme Court makes a decision. Culture makes a decision. The line comes over here. And far too many churches and Christians have just moved over here. Okay, well, I'll adjust to what the culture has pushed the line. Well, when the line's here, what's the culture going to do? They want to push it back. So it gets here. And so we get here. And here's what happens is the line continues to be pushed. And instead of us staying and standing in biblical truth, we have adjusted And that's why you have eventually, in 2015, a Supreme Court that says, yeah, marriage isn't between a man and a woman. It can be between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. And there's no pushback anymore. Why? Because the culture moved the line and Christians agreed with it. And so we're here when we should be there. And we didn't push back anymore. The reforms... At the end of the Old Testament, under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, were profound. And in a matter of nine years, they had disgraced the honor of God's name by discarding the family. And again, this is, if you have gone through a divorce, this is, not anything at all directed towards you is critical. Because I know many of your situations and it's not what you had wanted and you fought for it. So this, this has nothing to do with that. But this has to do with men. Men in the room today, God has called us to make a stand at the line and to stand there. Because I'm telling you, eventually, the line's going to be back here. The culture's going to push it. But we've got to stand on what's biblical, and it needs to be led by men. 
That's not a negative statement about women. But if you look throughout history, when men give up being warriors for their families, then cultures crumble. And so do churches. So this is, again, the condition. So we're going to talk again next week a little bit more about marriage and what was happening and taking place there. Let's pray.